Section zero of an interpretation of Keats Endymion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug. An interpretation of Keats Endymion by Henry Clement Notcutt, Professor of English, University of Stellenbosch, South Africa. Introduction Her careful study of Endymion, made some ten years ago, led to the conclusion that there was more of allegorical significance in the poem than had hitherto been recognised. But the effort to trace that significance was only partially successful. Further study since that time has gradually opened up the way to the interpretation that is worked out in the following pages. It is probable that there are details in the story, the meaning of which still lies hidden, but it may at least be hoped that enough has been discovered to win for the poem its rightful place among the not very numerous examples in English poetry of well-wrought allegory. It will be seen that frequent reference has been made to Sir Sidney Colvin's recently published Life of Keats, 2nd edition, 1918 which has superseded all other authorities on the subject, and, while the interpretation of Endymion, here put forward, differs largely from his treatment of that poem, it is pleasant to have the opportunity of giving expression to the deep sense of gratitude which all lovers of Keats must feel for his scholarly and sympathetic work. Stellenbosch, South Africa, 10th of March, 1919 it is a strange habit of wise humanity to speak in enigmas only, so that the highest truths and usefulest laws must be hunted for through whole picture galleries of dreams, which to the vulgar seem dreams only. Ruskin An Interpretation of Keats' Endymion Endymion and Allegory It is generally agreed that in writing Endymion, Keats intended to do something more than merely to retell an old legend. He does not appear, so far as the records go, to have left any definite statement to that effect, but there are indications that point distinctly to such a purpose. The poem beginning, I stood tiptoe upon a little hill, with which his first volume, published in March 1817, opens, had originally been called Endymion, but was afterwards left without a title, because Keats had decided to make a more ambitious effort to handle the same subject. And the significant fact, for our present purpose, is that the earlier Endymion, while it touches lightly upon the old legend, is really concerned with the views of Keats on the philosophy of poetry. It would not then be surprising to find that the longer and more ambitious treatment of the story, upon which he set to work as soon as the earlier volume had appeared, embodied his views on the same subject, handled this time in a fuller and more elaborate manner. It is perhaps worth noting how much of his verse is concerned with this one theme, the training and function of the poet. In the volume of 1817, besides I Stood Tiptoe, the epistles to his brother George, to Matthew, and to Cowden Clark, and the more important Sleep and Poetry, all deal with this matter, and in one of his latest pieces of work, The Fall of Hyperion, he returns once more to the same theme, 
It is interesting also to find his thoughts on other matters running into the form of allegory during the time when he was working on the first book of Endymion. In May, 1817, he writes to Taylor and Hesse, who afterwards published the poem, that he could make a nice little allegorical poem called The Dun, where we would have the castle of carelessness, the drawbridge of credit, Sir Novelty Fashion's expedition against the city of tailors, etc., etc., and turns immediately afterwards to the subject of Endymion. Lastly, it may be noted that there is a passage in the first book which might of itself almost settle the question of the real significance of the poem. It occurs in the talk of Endymion with Peona, lines 769 and following, and in it the mask is for the moment laid aside, and Keats himself speaks out in his own proper person. He asks, Wherein lies happiness? And goes on to answer, In that which becks our ready minds to fellowship divine, a fellowship with essence, till we shine full alchemized and free of space. He proceeds to mark off the various grades of happiness, starting from the sympathy that can enter into the wonders and aspirations of former days, and passing on through friendship to love, which may produce more than our searching witnesseth. And if earthly love, he goes on to say, can lift us far above the ordinary level of life, what power must lie in a passionate endeavour to reach up to a divine ideal? It is fortunate that a record remains showing that Keats attached particular importance to this passage. The lines quoted above were not in the original poem, and in sending them to his publisher, as the poem was passing through the press, he wrote, You must indulge me by putting this in, for setting aside the badness of the other, such a preface is necessary to the subject. The whole thing must, I think, have appeared to you, who are a consecutive man, as a thing almost of mere words. But I can assure you that, when I wrote it, it was a regular stepping of the imagination towards a truth. My having written that argument will perhaps be of the greatest service to me of anything I ever did. It set before me the gradations of happiness, even like a kind of pleasure thermometer, and is my first step towards the chief attempt in the drama. It is evident, then, that there was much more in the mind of Keats when he wrote this poem than the retelling of an old and fantastic tale. But, of course, the final justification for this view of Endymion must lie in the poem itself, if, as it is hoped to show, there is to be found, running beneath the surface of the poem in a clear and unbroken stream, a meaning that corresponds closely with the ideas that are known to have filled the mind of Keats at this time, there will be no need of further argument on the matter. An allegory of this kind does not slip into a poem by accident. But it may fairly be asked, why did not Keats himself do something to elucidate the meaning of a poem which, though it cost him so much effort, seems to have been understood by few, if indeed by any, in his own time, and which, even at this late day, has scarcely yielded up its full treasure of meaning? Two facts may supply a sufficient answer to this query. The first is that, before he had finished the poem, Keats became dissatisfied with, and tired of it. This feeling shows itself repeatedly in his letters. Soon after he had reached the end of the third book, he wrote to Hayden, 
My ideas with respect to it, I assure you, are very low, and I would write the subject thoroughly again. But I am tired of it, and think the time would be better spent in writing a new romance, which I have in my eyes for the next summer, and some time later to Reynolds. I have copied my fourth book, and shall write the preface soon. I wish it was all done, for I want to forget it, and make my mind free for something new. And then the unintelligent and unfair criticism with which the poem was received by most of those who noticed it, and, what was almost worse, the indifference of the greater part of the literary world would offer but a slender inducement to enter upon an explanation of its meaning. If even the few friends who took up his defence failed to interpret it rightly, what could be expected from those who began to read it with minds prejudiced against the author? So he held his peace. He probably felt as unwilling to explain his allegory as a humorist would be to explain one of his jokes that had fallen flat, and, moreover, he would know that any such defence would only give occasion for fresh ridicule. The Main Intention Accepting the presence of an allegory as a working hypothesis, we may next try to define its main intention. It is true that any attempt to state, in matter-of-fact prose, the significance of an allegory must inevitably be unsatisfactory. A painting of a sunset, or of waves breaking on the shore, is unsatisfactory, for how can one reproduce on canvas the constantly shifting play of light and colour which makes the real beauty of the scene? Yet we find pleasure in the attempt, and, in the case of the allegory, where a more purely intellectual element is involved, an attempt to define its purpose has a real value in clearing one's way towards an understanding of the problems involved. Definitions and Criticisms Professor de Selincourt has described the allegory as representing the development of the poet's soul towards a complete realisation of itself. Mr. A.C. Bradley says, The adventures of Endymion are also the experiences of the poetic soul in its search for union with the absolute beauty. So Sidney Colvin gives a fuller definition. The essence of Keats' task is to set forth the craving of the poet for full communion with the essential spirit of beauty in the world, and the discipline by which he is led, through the exercise of the active human sympathies and the toilsome acquisition of knowledge, to the prosperous and beatific achievement of his quest. Each of these writers, however, proceeds to remark upon the imperfect way in which the intention has been carried out. Professor de Selincourt, after a brief sketch of the purpose of the poem, adds, It is hardly safe to give a more detailed interpretation of the allegory, for, as a whole, Endymion is vague and obscure. Sir Sidney Colvin, while in some places taking up a more thorough-going attitude of defence than previous writers had adopted, yet says, In Endymion, Keats had impeded and confused his narrative by working into it much incident and imagery, symbolic of the cogitations and aspirations, the upliftings and misgivings of his own unripe spirit, and quotes with approval Shelley's remark, I think if he had printed about fifty pages of fragments from it, I should have been led to admire Keats as a poet more than I ought, of which there is now no danger. Mr. A. C. Bradley is more severe. The result is a series of adventures, to the details of which 
it is impossible to assign a distinct symbolic meaning, and which, taken more simply, have the incoherence of a broken dream. That there are many faults of expression, and not a few lapses from good taste, in all the earlier work of Keats, cannot be denied. An endymion is by no means free from these defects, but it is hoped to show that there is a fuller and more consecutive meaning running through the whole poem than has yet been recognised, that many of the details, which have been thought to be superfluous and unmeaning, are significant and appropriate when viewed from the right standpoint, and that much of the criticism that has been directed against it is mistaken and irrelevant, since it is based upon a failure to understand the meaning and purpose of the passages criticised. A Double Purpose In trying to arrive at a satisfactory statement of the underlying meaning of the poem, it is necessary to recognise that the allegory appears to have a double purpose, to carry at once a wider and a narrower meaning, the wider meaning having reference to the new birth of poetry, which came about as soon as the power of the pseudo-classical school declined, and English poetry was released from what Keats regarded as the cramping and deadening influence that Pope and his associates had exercised. The narrower being intended to give some account of the experience of an individual, picturing the rise and development of the poetic passion in his mind, his earnest pursuit and gradual realisation of the ideal that is set before him. In some parts of the poem, the two ideas can be recognised side by side, but usually one or the other is dominant for the time. Thus, in the first book, the earlier part is a picture of the spirit of the time in which the revival of poetry began, while the rest of the book deals with the more personal aspect of the subject. One need not be surprised to find this double purpose at work. Keats was an enthusiastic admirer of Spencer, and the Fairy Queen would furnish him with a precedent that would be warrant enough for such a plan. It would indeed have been difficult to keep the two ideas apart from one another, for the impulses that were stirring in the mind of Keats and were urging him on to develop his own gift of song, were but part of the great tidal movement that was flooding in through many channels, and he was clear-sighted enough to recognise the fact. If we look at the sonnet that he addressed to Hayden in a letter of November 1816, Great spirits now on earth are sojourning, in which he refers to Wordsworth, Lee Hunt, and Hayden himself as pioneers of a new era, and then read another letter addressed to Hayden in the following May, when working at Endymion, in which he quotes the following lines of Love's Labours Lost. Let fame, that all pant after in their lives, live registered upon our brazen tombs, and so grace us in the disgrace of death. And adds, To think that I have no right to couple myself with you in this speech would be death to me. We can see how he thought of his own ambitions and ideals as connected with the wider movement that he saw to be in progress, not as a matter of boasting, but as the recognition of simple fact. It may further be noted that the same collocation of ideas is to be found in Sleep and Poetry, which had been published a little while before he seriously took up the writing of Endymion. In this poem he had denounced, in terms that roused the wrath of Byron, those that went about, holding a poor decrepit standard out, marked with most flimsy mottoes, and in large, the name of one Boileau, 
and had gone on to celebrate the advent of happier times, now tis a fairer season, and then had linked with all this the hope that he himself might be found worthy to play some part in this great poetic revival. We may now try to ascertain what light can be gained on the purpose of the poem from a closer examination of the text. End of section.